John also was baptizing in Anon near Salim because there was much water there and they came and were baptized for John had not yet been thrown into prison. Then there arose a dispute between some of John's disciples and the Jews about purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you beyond the Jordan to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing and all are coming to him. John answered and said, a man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth is earthly and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. And what he has said, what he has seen and heard, that he testifies. And no one receives his testimony. He who has received his testimony has certified that God is true. For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God. For God does not give the spirit by measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life. And he who does not believe the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God abides on him. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the, the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself did not baptize but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again to Galilee. This is the word of the Lord. The, the Bible is, it's, uh, it has four books that are devoted to the life of Jesus, the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now, each of those Gospels is unique. They, they each have different focus, different details, but it's, it's all the same Jesus. The Gospel of John brings something unique, something that's not found in the other three. In John's Gospel, we learn more about the early part of Jesus' ministry, and we learn about especially his early ministry in the south of Israel, in Judea. The other three Gospels give very little information about this period. Now, in the text today, we've got two celebrity figures in that southern region surrounding Jerusalem. There was one celebrity figure, John, the baptizer. He was preaching in the wilderness, and John was enjoying you could, you could call it a celebrity status. Matthew 3 says that the capital city, Jerusalem, and, and all of Judea and all the region around the Jordan River, they all went out to John, to see John, to hear John. If, if they had had football stadiums at the time, John was a person who was filling football stadiums with people, and they were fans. They kept coming. They wanted to hear what he was saying. They came to hear his words, and when, when he spoke, it produced a deep emotional response in the hearers. People were profoundly moved, often with guilt, conviction, that they were sinning. And they would stream to him, and they requested from him, 
baptism, water baptism to clean them from the guilt. And some of them who would come, not only would they be baptized, some of them would become interns. They, they would become disciples of John. And they would follow him as he traveled, as he spoke. They learned from him, and, and they would even help him baptize others. So that's John, and, and you could say John and his interns. That's one of the celebrity figures. But then to this very same region, at the very same time, another speaker comes. Jesus, verse 22. Jesus and his disciples, they come to Judea. And the, the, the disciples of Jesus, like his interns, the interns of Jesus, they start a very similar public presence, doing very similar things to what John is doing. Jesus' disciples are also baptizing people in the same territory. And so it's, it's almost like there are these two celebrity tours playing in the same venues, in the same region, and, and Jesus also makes a splash. And he gains just as much celebrity status as John, the baptizer. And then we see, in verse 26, Jesus rises even higher. And John, John loses what he, some might feel like he loses some of his market share, if you could call it that. He loses some of his market share to Jesus. In verse 26, it says, Jesus is baptizing and all are coming to him. They're saying to their mentor, to John, last year, Last year, when we did this event here, last year we had twice as many people at this event, but now half of them are gone. They've gone away, and they're attending the event that Jesus is heading. They're, they're saying, last time we were here, we maxed out the capacity of this place, but today we barely saw enough people here to bother even coming out. They're saying, look, Jesus is baptizing, and all are coming to him instead of to us. And in chapter 4, verse 2 that we read, verse 1, it says that Jesus is making and baptizing more disciples than John. And so it seems like Jesus' star is rising, John's star is falling. And the question is, what happens when Jesus shrinks your share? What happens when Jesus reduces the attention that people pay you? And we see three things in our text. We see dismay. When Jesus increases. Secondly, we see delight when Jesus increases. And then thirdly, we see deliverance when Jesus increases. Let's look at each of these. Verses 22 through 27, we see dismay when Jesus increases. These interns under John, his disciples, they they had experienced what you could call peak John. The, the pinnacle of where John would, what, what, where he, what he would hit. But now they see their base shrinking. Peak John, that time is over. Their base is shrinking and it's, it's not going to turn around. Now, we don't normally expect this. That's not what we expect because John is a faithful man. John is a faithful man bringing a faithful message. And what would you expect if you were faithful and you were bringing a faithful message you would expect that being faithful in word and faithful in deed, you would expect that that would mean recognition, that it would bring lasting recognition, something that would remain, not fade away. And sometimes that does happen. The Protestant Reformation was a movement that still remains today, centuries later, and it still continues to bear copious fruit 
centuries later. But sometimes the Lord has us build something and it's just for a moment. And, and the Lord intends it to be temporary. He intends us to build something that will be good and faithful, but it only is to be for a time. Now in the case of John, a faithful movement, for him, for the mission that God gave him, a faithful movement means a ministry that would end. Look at how it ends for John. Here's how it ends. It ends, it ends in this way. It means John's going to die. Verse 24, part of having a faithful execution of the mission God gave him means that John must die. Verse 24, John the baptizer would be arrested and then executed by the vindictive wife of the governor. So here's how his faithful ministry ends. John would die. Here's how it also ends. It means John lost control of the narrative. John lost control of the narrative. Verse 25, there arose a dispute between some of John's disciples and the Jews about purification. Now, John was preaching repentance and purification. He was preaching it to Jews, and he was preaching it as a Jew himself who was the son of a high priest, a high Aaronic priest who had entered into the holy place of God. So if anyone would know about purification, John would know. His dad had gone into the holy place. But there's this dispute. And, and John had controlled the narrative for a time, all the preaching, all the crowds, but he lost control of the narrative. And, and so then what happened was they were spreading stories about John. They would spread stories about what he said, what he meant, what was wrong about it. And maybe you know what that's like when they spread rumors stories about you? Are, are there people spreading stories about you? Have you lost control of the narrative in your little circles? For John, his successful ministry ended with his death. It ended with him losing control of the narrative. And then John finished his mission. John had always preached. A faithful mission for him meant that he would end it because he had always preached that he was only here to prepare the way for another, to prepare the way for the one to come, Messiah. And when Messiah came in John's lifetime, John's mission, that part of his mission was done. There wasn't more that he could do. He wasn't trying to come up with, well, now what's part two? How do I reinvent myself? When Messiah finally came, when Jesus came, John spotlighted Messiah. He spotlighted Jesus Christ. He baptized Jesus, and then John is done. He's done. It was time to transition. It was time to start closing down his successful ministry. So John would die. John would lose control of the narrative. And John would finish the mission. Now, this is painful and confusing to John's interns. They're dismayed. They don't like losing listeners. They don't like seeing the budget start to shrink down to zero. And you hear it in verse 26. Teacher, he who was with you beyond the Jordan, Jesus, to whom you have testified, behold, he's baptizing, he is baptizing, and all are coming to him. And then we see that Jesus baptized and made more disciples than John. And so what they're saying is, John, John, this guy that you platformed, now he is becoming bigger than you? The opening act, your opening act is now becoming the main act, and you're just not even on the stage anymore. And so you, you look at John living and seeing his life work start to diminish, start to shrink, and start to close down. Now for the Christian, we expect the same trajectory for our lives. 
We said John would die. That was part of his faithful mission. He would die. Well, we are going to die. We will die. This world is perishing. We don't look for longevity in this land. We are seeking, you are seeking, if you are a believer, the eternal city whose builder and maker is God. You will die. And whatever ministry or business or family that you build, it's all temporary. It's temporary. John would die. We will die. Now, we also expect this. John lost control of the narrative. But the Christian knows that he or she never has control of the narrative. We can faithfully speak, but only the Holy Spirit persuades. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 14. But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. And so we, we may, by the Spirit of God working in us, we may gain the ear, persuade people for a time. But don't flatter yourself. We never have the capacity to control the narrative. And so that means parents, speak faithfully. Speak faithfully to your kids, but expect that the Lord has to be the one to actually convince them, to actually change them. And that means friends, Tell your friend the faithful truth, even if you suspect that they will reject it. Galatians 4, 16. Have I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? So don't withhold the truth from your friend. Don't withhold speaking the truth for fear of losing control of the friendship. John was faithful even when they stopped listening. And then John finished his mission. John's mission was not to grow himself up. John's mission was always to grow down, to glorify Jesus Christ, to exalt Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John's mission from the very beginning was to work himself out of a job, to prepare the way of the Lord, and then to get out of the way of the Lord once the Lord arrived. And so John, verse 28, tells his dismayed interns, his disciples, you heard me say it. You heard me say it. I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. And that's the mission for you, Christian. That is your mission. You, you like John, are convinced of the same thing. I am not the Christ, but I can show you where he is. Sometimes we we engage in in good works in our lives. As we go out into the world, where we serve, where we live, we're diligent in our jobs, we're diligent in our vocations, and we, maybe you volunteer to help people who have needs. Maybe you, you, you give instruction to the young in the word of God. Maybe you visit people who are struggling, people who are down. Maybe you do work for the good of the city to spread the message of Jesus to people who are without God, without hope in the world. You do all that. But you do that knowing that you are not the Christ. You may be the hands of Christ. You may be the feet of Christ. But you are not the Christ. You cannot break someone out of a determined commitment that they may have to resist God, to sin. You can't break someone out of that. You cannot illuminate a darkened mind. You can't soften a hardened heart. You are not the Christ. But there is a Christ. There is a Christ, and he's come. And so you keep on. You keep on 
faithfully raising your children in the fear and the admonition of the Lord. You keep speaking the truth in love, with patience, to your, to, to your obstinate family member. You continue to fulfill all the good works that have been prepared for you by God from the foundation of the world. You are faithful, and you just leave the results to God. When you understand that, when you're convinced of that, it means you can do these things, and if they don't work out, if people reject you or resist you, if you understand that, you're not as impatient and angry at the person who won't listen to your faithful words. You're not as impatient and frustrated with the person who will not stop destroying his or her family with, with their stubborn and sinful choices. It grieves you, but it doesn't rob you of compassion. It doesn't fill you with, with anger. You are not the Christ. Now, studies tell us that at this point in time, the only part of the visible church in America that is experiencing significant numerical growth today, the only part in the American church scene that is experiencing significant numerical growth today, it is in the Assemblies of God, a Pentecostal denomination, charismatic. Now, they hold to the historic understanding of the authority of scripture, they hold to the doctrine of Christ, they hold to the, the Christian sexual ethic, they acknowledge the value of the unborn, and they understand the call for ethnic diversity in the church. About a third of the assemblies of God is non-white. And then here we are, we're you know, in, in our, our, our NAPARC tradition, reformed Presbyterians, we've, we've seen actually in the PCA, we've seen some increase year over year, but it's nothing like the Assemblies of God right now. Now, where do you go with that? How do you think about that? How do you, how do you, what do you say about that? Verse 27, a man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. Jesus said, one person plants, another person waters, but God gives the growth. And so just be thankful. That, that's what you do with that. You can be thankful. Be thankful that somewhere, Somewhere, God is growing the body of Christ in America greatly. Now, maybe we're not talking about denominations or that kind of thing. Just bring it down. Maybe your marriage feels like it's failing, but you see other people's marriages flourishing. Or maybe your kids, it feels like they're flying off the rails, out of control. And, and you see other families sitting side by side, smiles in the pews, and you can, maybe you can barely drag yourself out of bed in the morning and face the day, and why does everyone else in the room just seem to be soaring high? You can be thankful. Just be thankful that somewhere God is giving growth. So we see dismay when Jesus increases, but second, we see delight when Jesus increases. This is in verses 29 through 31. You, you want to notice here the very strong contrast between John and John's interns, John's disciples. John's interns feel threatened. John's interns are despairing. But John, how's John doing? John is fine. He is doing, he's mighty fine. John 3 verse 29 he says 
He who has the bride is the bridegroom. So he's saying this is a wedding. There's a bride, there's a bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. He must increase, but I must decrease. What's going on here? John is saying, I'm at a wedding, and I'm just the best man. I'm the best man at the wedding. I'm not the groom. I'm not the bride. I'm just the best man. And it it was never the point that I should be the most prominent one. And I am so happy to see the hour arrive for this couple. John is rejoicing. He's absolutely delighted. Let me give you an illustration. Have you heard of this phenomenon when when people are planning a wedding and, and they sometimes talk about some aspect of it where they talk about bridezilla, bridezilla. It's, it's a stereotype of how some wedding preparations can go. Uh, the, the woman is making all the plans for her wedding, the flowers, the food, the dress, the wedding dress, her hair. And then bridezilla, is, it's, a, it's a word where it combines bride and Godzilla. Godzilla, the, the, the Japanese giant movie monster that stomps through cities and knocks over skyscrapers and there are explosions and bri- Godzilla's breathing fire. Bridezilla is when the bride becomes Godzilla and turns the wedding plans into this chaotic, self-centered tyranny. And, and, and she goes on blast on her friends and her florist and even her fiancé. And she's, just, she's totally lost perspective about the love and the unity that's at the center of the wedding. John is telling his disciples, you have lost perspective You've lost perspective about this wedding. You've lost perspective about our mission and our message. John says, I'm not the bride. I'm not the groom. I'm just the best man at this wedding. And Jesus is the groom. And I greatly rejoice even just to hear that he's arrived, to see him appear at this wedding. And so I'm feeling great, guys. Verse 29, he says, this joy of mine is fulfilled. Listen to that. John's joy In the arrival of Jesus, it is so deep. It's so deep and so strong, his joy is, that John can see his life's work, his ministry, shrink down and shut down. And he finds his heart fulfilled with joy over it. Do you have that? Do you have that kind of joy? Joy that you're a friend of the bridegroom. Joy that Jesus would count you as his friend. Do you have that kind of joy in in having Jesus? Because if you do, when Jesus becomes bigger than you, if you have that, when Jesus becomes more prominent, even more prominent than your place in your family, than your place in your ministry, than your own place at work, when you have that, when John says, he must increase, I must decrease, you're able to say, I've got joy. I've got joy in Jesus getting bigger while I get smaller. John is content to be big or little. Are you? Are you content knowing that God causes people to rise and God causes people to fall? For John, John knows his place. He knows his place in the wedding. He knows his place before God and he's absolutely secure in that. What is it that makes John secure even when he loses control of the narrative, even when he sees his his base shrinking? What makes him secure? Well, here's one thing that makes John secure. 
It's because Jesus is my friend, says John. John is so secure in his friendship with Jesus that John has joy in seeing Jesus increase. And he's, he's just not worried about himself. He's not fixated on himself. He's just delighted to see his friend Jesus increasing. John's so secure, you'll recall that John sent his own disciples over to Jesus. And so the call, if you are a friend of Jesus, Jesus is your friend, the call to you is to become smaller. The call is for you to become secondary. Success is when Jesus shines and I shrink. Now, we don't, the world, we don't tend to think of success in that way. We tend to think this way. I need to be seen. I need more respect. I want greatness, not smallness, not insignificance. Is there something that the Lord is shrinking in your life today? Some loss of respect, some, some dissipation of your prominence, some loss of, of security. Is there something that the Lord is shrinking in your life? Is there something that the Lord is shriveling in your life? Maybe you've got a diminishing influence over your kids who are no longer children, but they're becoming adults. And, and you're realizing other people besides me have more weight and more regard than, than I once had. Is there something that the Lord is, is just shutting down in your life? Maybe you've served faithfully at the head of something for a long time, but now it's time for others to step in. Now it's time for something else to rise up. The Lord even closes down entire ministries when his work for it is done. I think of one illustration. At, at this congregation, did you know that this church used to have a two-hour prayer meeting every week, a two-hour prayer meeting on Saturday night from 7 p.m. to 9 p.m. for 20 years, maybe 25 years, maybe more, this weekly work of substantial spiritual labor Laboring in prayer, it was good. But its time came to a close. It came a time when the Lord showed the elders, the elders prayed about it, the elders deliberated about it, and the elders discerned it was time to close it down. You can't keep sitting on the bus when the bus has arrived. It's time to get off the bus sometimes. So we've looked at the dismay when Jesus increases. We've looked at the delight when Jesus increases. Now let's end with the deliverance when Jesus increases. This is verses 31 through 36. These verses rehearse one of the major themes in the book of John, that Jesus is not only a man, that Jesus is divine. He came from above. He came from heaven. And so verse 31, John says, he Jesus comes from above. He, Jesus, comes from heaven. Verse 34, he, Jesus, was sent by God. So not only does Jesus come from from above, Jesus is also above all. Verse 31, he, Jesus, who comes from above, is above all. He who comes from heaven is above all. Now this is a key, this is part of the key, another part of the key for why John is so secure 
if everything is shutting down and shrinking down in front of him. Part of it's because Jesus is his friend and he has a secure friendship, but he's also secure because John, John knows the inherent supremacy of Jesus. Verse 35, the father loves the son and has given all things into his hand. That means the hand, the hands of Jesus hold thrones and dominations the ones that were created by his word. John knows that his own place, John, the baptizer, knows his own place in comparison to the supreme son of God. And so, actually, it's not that John's decreasing and, and Jesus is increasing. Actually, Jesus is not rising higher. Jesus is already at the top, the very, very top. He's at the very top of the organizational chart of the universe, not just Judea. Jesus is, he really is, you could say, the first and the truest undercover boss. The, the, the C-suite executive who pretends to be one of the summer hires, summer interns, so that he can live and work among his people. But John knows that Jesus is already at the very top. And so, John's not surprised to see Jesus moving up in Judea. John's not threatened when Jesus seems to increase and he himself seems to decrease. Now, if you're exploring Christianity, we're, we're very glad that you're here, that you're listening to this. Here's something that you should know about Christianity. In Christianity, Jesus is, is not just an important figure in the Christian faith. He's not only that. But Jesus is over all. Jesus is in all. Jesus is through all. Colossians 1, 17. And he, Jesus, is before all things. And in him, all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things, he, Jesus, may have the preeminence. To become a Christian means it requires that you firmly assent that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus has supremacy over the universe, that Jesus has supremacy over you. To become a Christian means in part that you say that Jesus has say over anything and everything in my life, my career, my sexual activity, my money, my marriage, he is over all. Now, we live in a time where we just don't trust people that are over things. We don't trust people or institutions that have power. We know too many stories of people abusing power, corrupted power in government, corrupted power in institutions, corrupted power in the home. And, and now you hear me saying, well, Jesus holds all power over all of those things. And the natural question in the spirit of our day is, well, how could you trust that? How could you trust him with that much power? How can you trust Jesus with the highest position of power? Can he be trusted? Here are two reasons. Two reasons that you can entrust Jesus with the highest position of power. First of all, you can trust Jesus with the highest position of power because Jesus gave up power. 
Our experience tells us that people, when they're placed in power, people with, with prominence, they don't give it up. Once they get it, they will not give it up. We don't want to lose it. We clutch at it. We will not let go of it. And we start to develop this mindset where we're thinking people try to take away some of my power, some of my, my prominence, and, and we're thinking, don't you know who I am? The disciples of John, they stumbled when Jesus disrupted and diminished their power. They didn't want to lose significance. They didn't want to lose share. All of their ministry, all the, the hard work they did, their preaching, the long hours that they spent receiving people in the wilderness, and now the crowds are flocking after someone else. And to us, smaller attendance, reduced recognition, that feels like failure. It feels like losing. It feels like a sort of death. They, had, they were starting to feel entitled and so now they felt rejected. But Jesus displays the perplexing glory of the kingdom. Those who are greatest must become least in the kingdom. The highest must become lowest. The master descends to become servant of all. And so you can trust Jesus with the highest position of power because Jesus gave up all of that power. In the gospel, Jesus left the high throne in heaven, his high throne in heaven, and he descended to earth, not to an earthly throne, but to kneel, to kneel under the weight of the cross that he would carry. Jesus gave up all his supreme power and gave himself over to the power of the hour of darkness so that you could be raised in power in his resurrection. It was by his lowering death for your sins that you receive life. The man who would give up his power for the good of his people can absolutely be trusted with the highest power. Now the second reason that you can trust Jesus with the highest position of power, it's only love makes power safe. Only love makes power safe safe. And Jesus holds his power in love from the very beginning. It wasn't something he added on. From the very beginning, he held his power. He holds his power in love. The text says that Jesus has all authority, that Jesus is overall. But that top position, that receiving of all authority and the highest place, that was grounded not merely in divinity. It was not merely grounded in authority. It was grounded in affection. Look at verse 35. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. That is why Jesus has all things and all power because it was the love of the Father giving the throne to the Son. Christ's power is a power founded in love. The Father gave all things into the hands of the Son in love. That's how it arrived. And that's why it is safe for Jesus to hold all power. Love, only love, makes power safe. Power without love becomes tyranny. Power without love pleases itself. Power without love harms those who are under its power. But if you have power wielded in love, power wielded in love, can turn the universe into heaven. Power and prominence held in love makes those who are below it 
to flourish. And that's why Jesus the highest is willing to become Jesus the lowest. It was his love. He holds his eminence in love. Love lowers itself. Do you see, do you see this one way here in this text where Jesus diminished his power, diminished his prominence in love? John says, this is like a wedding. I'm the best man. Jesus is the groom. It's a wedding. And who is the bride? Who is the bride? Believer, you are the bride, loved by Jesus, who is over all. What we see is that Jesus married down. Jesus married you up. The text says that in love, the Father has given all things into his hand. And that means in love, Jesus gives you his hand in marriage. When you have that, it will change so many things. When you have that, you can handle rejection. You can handle rejection. That means however people reject you, however people close the door on you, you know that you are accepted by the only person who can open every door. Your earthly spouse may close you off, but your heavenly spouse always keeps the door open, his door open. And it means you're known You're completely known by someone who sees everything about you, including the secrets that would make everyone else turn away from you. And you're known by someone who, knowing all of that, he values you. Jesus values you. He befriends you. Jesus, the friend of sinners. Now, if you you have all that, it gives you a way to handle rejection. It also means this. When you have that, it means you can handle not just rejection, you can handle reduction, becoming smaller, Diminishing. Why? Because you are adored by the only person who can give you a glory that will outlast death, that will outlast every diminution. And, and when, when people stop paying attention to you, they're just not listening to you, they're not interested in what you think and what you have to say. Jesus, Jesus endured all that. Verse 32, it said, no one receives his testimony. They stopped paying attention to Jesus but they stopped paying attention to Jesus because in the gospel, Jesus puts all of his attention on you. And what does it matter then? What does it matter if you lose the respect of the management team when you've got the full regard of the son of heaven? When you know that the person at the top, the very top of the universe has selected you for a partnership, has selected you to be a co-heir, has selected you to be a spouse. What could you lose on earth that holds any significance compared to that? Finally, it means this. When you have this, it means you have redemption. You have redemption. The text says, he who believes in the Son has eternal life. And he who does not believe in the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. If you don't believe that Jesus is from God, you won't believe what Jesus says. It's almost saying you have got to embrace the Christology before you will embrace the redemption. Do you believe that Jesus is above all? Do you believe that Jesus alone removes the wrath of God 
by receiving the wrath of God himself for you? And will you now say, Jesus must increase, I must decrease? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you want us to be convinced that we are loved and that we are loved with a depth and a height and a breadth of love that is beyond knowledge. You want us to be convinced of the magnitude of your love, which is beyond even knowing. But would you convince us of this love? Would you give us a greater resting place in this love so that whatever increases or decreases in our lives It doesn't touch. It can't separate us from the love of God for us in Christ. And Lord, would you enable us to be unconcerned about ourselves and filled with delight that the Son has come and that the Son is ours. May we rejoice, Lord, through thick and thin, through increase or decrease, that Christ would be glorified, that Christ would be ours and Christ would be sweet to us. We ask this in his name. Amen.